over the last, I don't know, I would say five weeks or so, we've been covering uh, the introduction and going through chapter one, chapter two. We find ourselves in chapter three this morning, but it is the second part of, of a series that I've entitled A Warning Against Unbelief. And last week in the first portion of chapter three, we, we looked at verses seven, eight, and nine. And if you're unfamiliar with it, they're right there in front of you where um, the word therefore in verse 7 is the fourth use of the word therefore that's used 28 times in the book of Hebrews. And we were reminding ourselves last week that as the writer was writing to his reading audience, he was telling them that the Holy Spirit is speaking today. And the same thing is true right at this moment. The Holy Spirit is speaking today. And he was exhorting his reading audience that if they will listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and if they will be careful not to harden their hearts and keep their hearts soft, and he gives an example as in the rebellion And if they would stay in that position where they're just simply ready to believe God said it, so I believe it. That that is the the place in which God wants his children to be. It's the place in which God wants us to be. And the writer was reminding the Hebrew Christian it's the place that God wants them to be. And so we pick it up this morning in verse 10 in this second part of a warning against unbelief where again the word therefore is used. Now it's the fifth time out of 28 times that this word is used. Why so often? Fresh reminder, because everything within this book of Hebrews builds upon itself. Uh, And the word therefore, because of this, then that. And he points back in verse 10 to what the Holy Spirit had said about listening to the voice of God, not hardening your heart, simply believe what God has said. And he talks about that in those earlier verses that he's pointing back to, a time of rebellion, a time of trial, when the fathers, he says your fathers, tested and tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, in verse 10. We talked last week about the example that the author has given is uh, an echo, or he is repeating what takes place in Psalm 95, and David in Psalm 95, or the author of the psalmist in Psalm 95, was giving an account of a historical event, both in Numbers chapter 20 and uh, in Numbers 17, where God's people who had seen his works continued to rebel against submitting to his direction in their lives. And what we come to this morning is 
is an interesting and very, you know, it's kind of an awakening section if you've read this in a while. In verse 10, he says, Therefore, uh, I was angry with that generation. Uh, important to get out your lexicon at times and discover clearly what a word means. I mean, uh, the word angry can also be uh, defined as displeased. In the King James Version of the Bible, it says that he was grieved with that generation. Displeased, extreme anger, or disgust. Why? Because with that generation, that people, his people who he had determined that they would be his witness on the earth, carrying his word, that they constantly refused to submit to his directives in their lives. Uh, I do want you to notice something, too, in the phrase, that generation. That's important, extremely important. First of all, the grammatical importance of it is that it is in what we call the aorist indicative. And that generation in the aorist indicative means that it was an action not continuous. In other words, yes, he was displeased. He was grieved. He was angry with that generation, but he didn't continue to just stay angry with that generation. As if God is angry with people today. God's not angry. He's not angry at you. He's not angry at me. Have you heard the phrase, once in a while you run into somebody who has their own perspective of, of who God is, and they may say something like, oh man, I really, really must have made God mad today, or God must be really angry with me today, and some bad things happened. And yet the New Testament tells us, and the children sang it, that God demonstrated his what? His love for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. So no, God did not continue to stay angry. He was angry with that generation. And he declares why in that same verse is because they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Notice that. They always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. That's also important for you and I this morning because there's a distinction to be made between the works of God and the ways of God. Did you know that? Have you contemplated that recently or even at all in your spiritual life, your walk with Christ? A difference between the works of God and the ways of God. God was grieved, he was displeased because his people would always go astray in their heart and they did not know yet his ways. They had seen his works. They had seen him do miracle after miracle after miracle, delivering them from the bondage of Egypt 
bringing them through the Red Sea, safe from the hand of Pharaoh, giving them his glory, covering them with the cloud by day, and the fire by night, in the deserts of the Sinai, to which they always knew where to gather and wouldn't die from heat exhaustion. They had seen his works, giving them the manna, the bread, feeding them. And yet they still did not know his ways. I love what uh, William Newell says in his commentary. So affected me, I'd like to share it with you this morning. And again, it's audible, so maybe you'll remember some of it, maybe you won't. But he says this. Now this awful state was national Israel. They heard God's voice, but they hardened their heart against hearing, knowing, and obeying this living God. For this reason, we believe God does not set forth in the book of Hebrews the doctrines of Christianity, for this has already been done by Paul and the other apostles, both by preaching and in the epistles. But it is God's person and his ways that are in question here. He goes on to say, this is what got me, people are afraid of the ifs in Hebrews foolishly thinking that it is the conduct of professing Christians that endangers them. No, it is not their conduct. It is their attitude toward the living God. His works versus his ways. From Deuteronomy all the way through the book of Revelation, the phrase, the living God, is used 28 times to reinforce to you and I and to every reader throughout as long as humanity is reading the word of God that he's a living God. He's, he, he's not a stale religion. What did man's religion do to the Son of God? Man's religion crucified him. And because he is a living God, as we read, beware, lest there be, in verse 13, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. He's alive, interactively wanting to speak and have us listen, have us speak and know that he hears, have him direct and us follow, have him guide and we submit. Often there is a wrong perspective of, of Christianity when the word Christians was what the believers were called, remember, at Antioch. It's where they were first called Christians. But throughout most of the uh, history of the New Testament church, 
though that name has been tagged to those who believe in Jesus Christ, predominantly we are, as the church, as the body of Christ, we are believers. And if you want to know what God wants to do in the life of a believer, if you and I want to embrace and understand all that God wants to do in the life of of people, for goodness sake, don't look at church history. Church history has a bad legacy. Over thousands of years, murdering, killing, separating, all under the banner of some sect or church name or denomination or something. And because that generation would not, they would not allow themselves to get to know the ways of God, though they had seen the works of God, he said, I swore in my wrath or in my displeasure or in my grief, I swore, I said, I committed to that generation, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 11. And it brings up this question, what is the rest of God? If, if God swore to a generation of people that that generation will not enter his rest, what is the rest of God? So glad you asked. But that subject is dealt with in real depth in the next chapter that when we get into it, in chapter 4. But for our purposes here, the key to entering into the rest of God and we'll, we'll unpack that deeply as we go through chapter 4. The key is revealed in believing, in belief. And we didn't get there, but I will, I will point you to verse 19, which closes out this section. It says, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. The key of entering into the rest that God has for each one of his children is believing. It is interesting, though, um, oftentimes going through this section of the Bible, and at times there are those who are there, uh, maybe they're not, there are unbelievers, there are those on the road to believing, and though there are believers. I don't know if you're watching at home this morning or here in the sanctuary, you know, which section you might consider yourself. Uh, there are those who just do not believe at all. There are those who are on the road, to, they're starting to consider the evidences in Scripture. And there are those uh, that are believers. And we see that as it relates to this generation, they couldn't enter in because of unbelief, which might tempt some to think that entering into the rest of God has to do with obedience. 
especially if you look at verse 18. Look at verse 18 that says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? But disobedience mentioned in verse 18 is an outgrowth. It's a, it's a byproduct of not believing the unbelief mentioned in verse 19. If you know anything about historically about this generation that the writer is writing about, if you're you know, familiar with your Old Testament at all, and especially following their trek through Deuteronomy, Numbers, Exodus, uh, what we find is that it wasn't their specific sins that kept them from being able to enter into Canaan. It wasn't a lack of the evidence that God was with them that kept them from entering into Canaan. It wasn't the lack of encouragement that kept them from entering Canaan. And it wasn't difficult circumstances that kept them from entering Canaan. For God was ready at every moment to encourage, to deliver, to bring them into this promised land. But it was unbelief. And so the warning. Part two. The first warning that we get in the book of Hebrews is back there in chapter two about drifting away from the fundamental and foundations of our faith in Christ and his superiority. The second warning here is beware about unbelief when the writer says in verse 12, beware brethren. Now again, a reinforcement that the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrews who had converted to Christianity or they were uh, Hebrews that were practicing perhaps Judaism that now embraced what you and I know to be today as the Christian faith, acknowledging that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah and had come, had died on the cross, had been buried, rose the third day, and because of his blood and faith in his blood and his atoning work, that they were now promised eternity with God, no longer under the legal requirements of the law of Moses. So the book is written to, was written for, but it covers the entire scope of the body of Christ when he says, beware brethren, are we not now referred to as his brethren, Christ's brethren, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus. Beware, verse 12, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another or exhort one another daily while it is called today. In other words, you as long as you and I still have breath in these lungs and we're not dead, <clears throat> as long as you and I are alive, it is still today. 
We're not promised tomorrow. None of us know whether this is our last living day. And so the author, writing to that believing Hebrew, says, while you're still alive, exhort one another today, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened. Notice this last phrase, hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And again, we come to a a place in scripture where it's always a good practice to employ our, how many of you this morning are familiar with what we call inductive Bible study? Anybody here familiar with that? Okay, so to in to study the Bible inductively is to ask questions of what we are reading. Who, what, why, where. To observe in a verse, to observe in a passage, to observe in a chapter, uh, all the details. So that after we study those details, in Bible, inductive Bible studies, you observe observe, observe, which gives you a correct interpretation, which then leads to a correct application. So the question that comes to us when we read, lest any of you, he's talking to believers, be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, there are three questions that emerge. What is sin? How does it deceive? And how does the deceitfulness of sin harden the heart? What is sin? How does it deceive? And how does the deceitfulness of sin harden the heart? To answer the first question, we would clearly remind ourselves that in 1 John 3, 4, we're told that sin is lawlessness. Okay? Sin is lawlessness. And for our purposes here this morning, the sin referenced in verse 13 would be a, a state. It's not a specific action, but it's a state of being. It's not a specific itemized sinful thing to do, but rather a state of being in which one re- is a refusal to be controlled by God. Now, if you look at some of the original language in uh, 1 John 3, 4, we find that uh, there are two references there about law and lawlessness. And to say that sin is simply a refusal to be controlled or directed by the law of God, or even more clearly, the law of Moses, would be an inappropriate application of this statement in verse 13. 
Because the law of Moses was written for whom? It was written for Israel. And if we were to say that sin is lawlessness, in other words, not obeying or uh, embracing the law of God, the Old Testament, that that sin, that that's what the sin is referring to, a state of refusing to be controlled by the law of Moses or the law of God, that would put the entire human race back under the law. And we are not under the law. Verses that help us and remind us that the law of God was written and given to Israel. Psalm 147, 19 and 20. Malachi 4, 4. Romans 9, 8. But no, here, sin is a, quote, a state of being, of refusal to be controlled by God. Second question, how does sin deceive? Answer, in many ways. Sin, a refusal to a state of being in which I refuse to be controlled by God. I might even start to believe there is a God. I might even agree there is a God. I might even go as far as to say, perhaps this is his word. But to let him control my life? Whoa, now, wait a minute. A state of being where I am refusing to let him control my life, how does sin deceive? Many ways. It promises pleasure. Excuse me. Promises pleasure for a season. Uh, it promises Success and liberty in an earthly realm. Just do this and you'll succeed. Just do that and you'll, you'll be free. But in those promises of an earthly success or an earthly freedom, it stifles the conscience and hardens the heart, tells the individual or the heart to go ahead that all will be well when in essence, John 8, 34 reminds us everyone that commits sin is in bondage to sin. In other words, if, in other words, if I'm going to remain in a state that refuses to be controlled by God, then I am going to remain in bondage to the very decision that I've made. The third question is answered so clearly in the book of Ecclesiastes. How does the deceitfulness of sin harden the heart? You're wondering this morning, right? You might be saying, my heart's not hard. My heart's not hard. I love what, uh, who was it? I was watching uh, Pastor Jack Hibbs the other day, and, and he had a guest on. It wasn't Pastor Jack Hibb who said it, but he had a guest on that said about being deceived. He says, when you're deceived... You don't know you're deceived because you're deceived. Right? Simple logic. I mean, it's clear. If I was deceived right now, I wouldn't know I'm deceived because I'm deceived. How does the deceitfulness of sin, what was sin? A state of being 
refusing to let God control my life. How does it deceive? I begin to actually believe the lies of an earthly pleasure, an earthly success, an earthly liberty. Ecclesiastes 8.11. You might even turn there. Let's put our hand in chapter 3 of Hebrews. Turn backwards in your Bible to the left to Ecclesiastes. Remember where that is? You can use your content if you want. Content. Ecclesiastes. Chapter 8, verse 11. Get there. Psalms, Proverbs. Ecclesiastes. Chapter 8, verse 11. How, here's the answer to the question of how does the deceitfulness of sin harden the heart? Ready to read verse 11 with me? It says, Because the sentence against evil work is not executed repeatedly, or speedily, I'm sorry, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Let Let me define that. You turn back to chapter 3. What happens is man, woman, a young person that is refusing to let God control, therefore believing the lie, and going along their way in bondage to the decision they've made to not let God control their life, deceived by the deceitfulness of sin, the sentence of that decision isn't necessarily carried out speedily. You see what I'm saying? They can go along in life for a long time. And God, who is long-suffering and who is patient not wanting that any should perish, will give, what, how's the old phrase, will give you and I plenty of rope but that sentence of our decision to remain bound in a refusal for God to control our life it doesn't though it's not carried out speedily, still will bring a consequence. That's why the author says, while it's today, exhort one another while it is called today. We'll close with these last few verses. Verse 14 of chapter 3 of Hebrews, he says, for we, now two important, powerful words. He's not only including himself, he's including every 
Hebrew believer that he's writing to, and he's including every believer throughout all time. As he gives the warning against the hardening of our heart, refusal to let God in, and giving him free license to control and lead and guide our lives. How so? By submitting to him, by believing what he said, that Christ is superior. He died because of his uh, need to bring a once and for all sacrifice for the sin of all humanity. If I'm just going to believe that, and not only just believe it for all humanity, but believe it for me, and you believe it for you, that his death upon the cross was enough. His resurrection is enough. His blood is enough. And by promising the power of the Holy Spirit to come after he said, I I must go to prepare a place for you, but I'm going to send you another helper. And he sends the Holy Spirit upon which that spirit today, don't not listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit calling out to every one of us who's listening can hear my voice that has yet to surrender. We sang it. To surrender and submit to, to Christ. Why? Because God's angry and wants to, you know, bop you on the head? No, because of love. The greatest motivator for an obedient life is love. Keep that heart soft. He says, for we, verse 14, have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence Steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do we not hear the echo and the clarion call of God saying, I'm speaking, I'm saying it right now. And if if you're listening at all and you have yet to give me full control of your life, This is who I'm speaking to, is what this word is saying. And I don't know every life here. I don't know who's watching at home. But you know, if you've yet to give full control of Christ, of your life to Christ, you know that. And this is clearly what the Holy Spirit is saying. And then he gives three questions to underscore his plea and to reinforce the truth. Three questions, verse 16, 17, 18. For who, who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? First example. Who was it that heard? They heard God speak through God's servant Moses as God's servant Moses brought God's word and yet refused 
to remain under his control. There were only two that actually believed God was going to do what he said. Do you remember who those two were? Caleb and Joshua. They believed. They believed that God would do what God said he promised to do by conquering the enemy, though the enemy looked overwhelming and ominous. Second example, and now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? You know, again, this is one of those verses that if you just pull it out of context, people will start to beat you up about a God that you want to follow and a Jesus that you you want to serve who, I mean, he would kill people in the wilderness. I mean, what kind of God is that? But you're pulling it way out of context. You're not keeping it within the framework of what it is meant to say and why it happened. Got to read your Old Testament to stay in tune with that. Third example, verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they, and again, I want to reinforce the they, it's that generation, that's the generation that didn't enter the rest. After that generation died out, there was another generation that was brought into Canaan land. Did they ever know fully the rest of God? You're going to have to wait to hear the rest of the story as we go through four, you know, chapter 4, 5, and 6. Many of you know the answer to that. But to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? Obey by believing. So we see, and we close our study this morning, so we see, and isn't that a beautiful summary? I mean, he, write, he says it to the reader, but the Spirit of God says it to you and I this morning as well. So we see, it's clear. There's no denying that they would not, uh, that they could not enter. At that point in time, they could not enter because of unbelief. So it's a very beautiful, systematic, and yet harmonious warning about what it means to just simply believe that God said it. Okay, I'll believe it. Maybe I don't fully understand it. I, I even I have some questions about this, that, and the other, but I'm going to believe that God said it. Because he said it, I believe it. There's so much I don't understand about a lot of areas of Scripture yet, but it's a lifelong process, right? But he wants you and I to know his ways. And the way we get to know his ways is by believing in what he has said. And what he has said is that I love you enough to die for you. Will you give me full control of your life? I think every... One here, maybe this morning, perhaps most of us would say, that's me. I want him to have full control. If you've yet to do that, you can do that as we close in prayer and know that God will smile. Will you join me as we close? Sherry and Chris, you want to come?
Father, we thank you for your word this morning. So grateful that you've left us this love letter that that so clearly gives to us the picture of who you are, both in practical ways and in infinitely ununderstandable ways. And yet this morning we we hear you again saying to each one of us, let me have it all. Let me have your life. And so, Lord, it's, it's an act of surrender that is brought about by the decision to believe. And here we are again gathered together to simply acknowledge our surrender. Lord, at times there are days, there are moments where we want to take up the control again. It's so easy to do. But may we be reminded this morning that when we give you that control there is a rest a peace that we can enter into the peace of God and the world doesn't know that peace only the believer can know that peace And so if you're here this morning and you've yet to give him control, he's he's inviting you to do that. If you're watching this morning and you have yet to do that, he's inviting you. And to the rest of us who may have already given him that control, it's always so refreshing to surrender all over again, in which we do. So here we are, Lord. Receive us as we are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.